Welcome to Experiments vs. Experience here on www.ironradio.org. This is the show where a powerlifter... And I mean, after <laughs> 18 years of training, I'm only starting to realize... And a scientist... Because, no, the, the research gonna, is going to back that up, too. ...tackle tough questions sent in by listeners. It was the show that was created because science doesn't always agree with what athletes insist they know. Welcome uh, to Experiments versus Experience on IronRadio.org and NutritionRadio.org. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I am again with Jonathan Mike. Uh, John, why don't you just tell everybody who you are again? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this is Jonathan Mike, a doctorate student in exercise physiology, strength coach, and currently uh, amateur strongman competitor. So I've been lifting for over ten years, and um, so fairly pretty experienced uh, with the whole you know strength and power uh, ordeal. And so um, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Uh, today we're following up on our last topic, which was a very touchy topic, and we understand that. And that is, um, it's an oversimplified question, which is, are anabolic steroids bad? And not only is it oversimplified to ask it that way, uh, but you know, it depends on many, many things. Uh, what we wanted to touch on today was finish up our discussion on the roid rage effect and how that is sort of exaggerated in the media. And for that, I just want to play a little clip uh, from Rob Fortney, who, uh, of course, is a powerlifter. He's he's worked around lots of professional powerlifters and bodybuilders through... Uh, his editorial jobs at different magazines. But anyway, here's a little clip from Rob. I don't think it causes rage. I think it just is almost like a... If the person is naturally very aggressive, I think... I don't think it spurs on that aggression. I just think what you might see is just the person's natural natural aggression being kind of, you know... um, what we're looking for here. Um, emboldened, mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. by the hormones. Yeah. In other words, what a lot of people say to begin with, it, it's not going to turn somebody who's not aggressive aggressive. But if you are aggressive, I think you can turbocharge your aggressive outbursts. That's a good way to put it, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I see because honestly, do God, I've, in all the gas bags I've been around in my life, and I've been around my share big-time gas bags, I don't really ever notice anything that is really that unusual as far as aggressiveness. You know, the whole thing with that professional wrestler last year, the year before, who, like, killed his wife and daughter then hung himself. It was that um, Canadian professional wrestler, big-time, WWE guy. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what his name was. Big-time wrestler, though. And people were like, oh, well, they found that he had uh, traces of steroids and some steroids in his house. I'm like... Jesus Christ, the guy didn't kill his family to hang himself because he was on steroids. Right, right. So that, that, that leads people to believe, like, they're going to take a little 50-milligram shot of DECA, and then they're going to freak out and blow away their whole family or something. I mean, and the funny thing was, because I, I, I really looked into it a little bit more, there was all, the guy had all sorts of histories of, like, depression problems and all sorts of issues. I mean, the guy was on depression medications and right. all these types of things. But that doesn't sell, that doesn't create comp- controversy and sell advertisement and sell issues like, like, like throwing up the S word. In the same way of rage, I, I, in my opinion, it might just, just as it kind of, you know, 
know, a magnifies muscle gain and strength, you know, gain. I think it just kind of just magnifies everything. You know, if, if so if you have cancer, it makes the cancer spread faster, you know? If you had a propensity towards, you know, violent behavior emanating from some depression problem or something like that, it just will, like, use the same terminology, it'll turbocharge that. It just kind of potentially pisses me off because it's like, oh my God, yeah, people just get in. Like, I was just talking to a woman the other day that has no idea about anything about steroids, and I was talking about, you know, the, the andropause kind of thing. But I said, you know, like, you know, women can go and nobody box at a woman having menopause and maybe having a hormone replacement. I said, but, you know, so many people are terrified of the concept of, you know, a man who's, you know, cranky and shitty and weak and fat because he has no testosterone, having a fucking testosterone cream or something like that. And it's like, so it's taboo, you know, it's like, it's bullshit. And then, of, of course, John and I want to make some comments as well. Um, one of the things that I wanted to touch on uh, from a cardiovascular perspective um, is the, the fact that there are cardiovascular effects that are temporary. There are some that are not so temporary. Um, I have a whole lot of studies. In fact, I remember in graduate school, I actually had amassed a stack that was almost two feet tall of manuscripts about the effects of anabolic steroids. And I used to be very interested in this uh, I, I suppose as I've gotten more into nutrition, I've gotten a little less interested. But you will, in fact, find that a lot of the uh, blood lipid effects of different anabolic steroids uh, are, in fact, transient, I think, as John pointed out last time, whether it's reduced HDL or raised LDL. I'm looking at a paper from the journal Atherosclerosis from 1997, um, and they were looking at several different hormones and their effect on uh, testosterone levels. Actually, higher testosterone levels within a normal range are associated with a favorable blood lipid profile, according to this study, which I think is, is very interesting. Um, I think what happens is when people, uh, athletes or otherwise, they start to use other anabolic steroids, um, especially other than testosterone. I mean, part of testosterone aromatizes to estrogen, and you don't see a crashed HDL or the good cholesterol the same way that you might with a drug like stenozolol, uh, Winstrol, uh, which can literally drop HDL levels into the single digits. Now, that's just crazy. I mean, some doctors will get upset if your HDL drops below 40 or 35, and here we're talking about levels of like 4. <laughs> crazy. So, in fact, uh, there was a recent um, – Rob was making some recent comments about – uh, a professional bodybuilder, Mike Matarazzo, who doesn't compete anymore, but um, there seemed to be some uh, illusion in what Rob was saying that one of his problems, uh, he has cardiovascular problems now, and part of that was seemed to be about you know going on and staying on drugs probably like Winstrol, which crush your HDL down to nothing. And for those of you who aren't familiar, HDL is called good cholesterol in part because of this this phenomenon called reverse cholesterol transport, where it can actually gather cholesterol that may be lining arteries or in other tissues and get it back to your liver so you can eventually make it into bile and excrete it and, and things like that. But, John, you had some comments about the cardiovascular thing as well, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. This is from the same position paper that uh, from the Journal of Street and Conditioning Research from August of <clears throat> 2009. And it talks about, you know, administration uh, or replacement doses of uh, testosterone 
you know, it's associated with a small decrease in plasma HDL, like you pointed out, in sort of the good cholesterol, with little to no effect on total cholesterol and even uh, LDL, um, which is what we know as like the, sort of the bad cholesterol um, and triglyceride levels. But it really only appears that you know massive doses or super physiological doses. Um, that's really when you get uh, sort of the markedly decreased HDL. Um, especially with sort of the 17 alpha alkaloid um, androgens that do produce sort of a greater reduction in HDL and even greater increases in, in LDL um, over time. So um, just sort of add to the, the cardiovascular effects on that. Right. You know, I'm looking at a paper right now as you're talking from the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a 1996 paper. And again, if it sounds like these are old papers to people, uh, this is a topic that's not going to get tons of uh, – attention, especially when it comes to things like supraphysiologic doses and, and things like that. In fact, a lot of the studies I have are foreign studies. Uh, for whatever reason, they seem to be a little bit looser as far as the, you know, use of human subjects and, and you know, studying people who are self-administering things. But it says the doses of testosterone that affect these endpoints in normal men are not known in the short term, 3 to 4.5 grams of testosterone given over a period of 10 weeks, so what's that, 300 to 450 milligrams a week, um, adds additional risk. The fact that low, larger dose of testosterone in nanthate did not affect serum concentrations of lipids and prostate-specific antigen or measures of mood and behavior should provide some short-term reassurance. So mm -hmm. anyway, it, it's... Study after study, you really look at these kinds of things, and it says the same kinds of things. It looks like... Um, the effects are transient as far as blood lipids or cardiovascular things. Um, things you hear about prostate risk and things like that, I, I, I don't see as much concern over some of those kinds of things. Um, so anyway, we're trying to stick mostly in the first half of this call to some of the, the cardiovascular effects. Right, and something else that's uh, sort of really good to add too, people talk about, um, even if it's not you know drug-induced, they talk about left ventricular mass, uh, um, or ventricular wall thickness, and it says here that they list a bunch of references here. They talk about how increases in left ventricular mass, you know, have been reported among uh, in anabolic steroid users, but they also point out that you know, powerlifters who engage in, in sort of high-intensity resistance training, or deadlift or squat heavy, they can have uh, you know, left ventricular hypertrophy, but it's not clear on whether that is a consequence of resistance training or androgen use or both because a lot of strength athletes or, you know, power athletes that are involved in these types of things, you know, they do have uh, a thicker myocardial wall, um, just sort of the nature of being involved with strength sports. And, um, I mean, it could be genetic. It could be training-induced. It could be both training or drug-induced. So it's really hard to sort of differentiate uh, if that's a direct, you know, cause and effect. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, cardiovascular, so we've got blood lipid changes. We've got uh, thickening of the left ventricle. Of course, you know, that's going to pump blood up and out the aorta to the rest of the body. Um, there's a couple of other cardiovascular issues. One is uh, the risk of too much red blood cells, right? One of the legitimate uses of androgens is to increase hematocrit or try to fight anemia. Uh, here's a paper from a Scan Scandinavian journal of hematology. This is an 86 paper, uh, and they're pointing out that uh, the data show basically that among the different androgens tested, they're not all the same. And in this case, 
Fluoxymesterone is the most efficient at raising red cell count, and stenozolol is the least effective. So although something like Winstrol lowers HDL to very dangerous levels, it looks like it may not have as much negative impact um, on making your blood too thick. Uh, so again, interesting different types um, of anabolics having very different effects. Uh, and another point I wanted to make, here's a... Uh, 1982 paper, Journal of Steroid Biochemistry, Hall and uh, Hungerford, and they're pointing out that only testosterone in their case provoked um, sort of sodium retention, hypernatremia, hypertension, uh, things like that, compared to some of the other drugs, like they used uh, <coughs> uh, 19-NOR steroids that don't seem to have the same water-retentive effects. Now, almost any bodybuilder or powerlifter who has used or abused anabolic steroids knows that testosterone is classically associated with sort of a bloat. And in this case, it seems like, you know, that kind of bloat and sodium retention, hypertension uh, is a problem. And I know I've read other papers, too, that some of that hypertension never quite goes away, although it does get reduced. Um, I remember the one paper saying that blood pressures ranged around like 130 millimeters of mercury diet or uh, systolic. And, you know, that's starting to be close to borderline hypertension. Uh, and again, that, that's in former users, you know, not current users. So stuff to think about from the cardiovascular side. Right. I think it's a point, important to point out, too, that you know, people talk about these drugs and, well, it does this and does that and it has all these effects. And some of that may be true and some of it may not be true, but it just goes back to the different type of drug or, or, or combinations of drugs because they all do different things physiologically and have sort of these different, you know, side effects of what um, the effect it has on certain um, physiological, you know, systems, you know, cardiovascular, or, you know, pulmonary or, or liver, or uh, from an endocrine perspective, you know, what it actually does. So just to say that, well, it, you know, they do this and they do that all across the board, you really have to, you know, dig deeper um, and, and really know, you know, the drug, uh, what it's claim or what it's supposed to be physiologically before you start making these sort of these blanket statements about the drugs. Absolutely. And I, I mean, in 20 minute episodes or 30 minute episodes of experiments versus experience, we can't really go into every single one. But right, saying anabolic steroids do this or do that. It's almost like saying an athlete is like this or like that. Right. I mean, you know, a, a dancer is nothing like a football lineman in athletes. And the same thing, something like anadrol is nothing like uh, you know, Nandrolone, you know, things like that. You can't just blanket comment about that. Uh, before we end this part on the cardiovascular thing, I wanted to make one quick comment. Uh, here's a 2009 paper um, from Vanberg and Atar. Um, it says an uh, androgenic anabolic steroid abuse in the cardiovascular system. And this is just a very interesting paper because they are actually pointing out 2009, to date, there are no prospective, randomized, interventional studies on the long-term cardiovascular effects of the abuse of anabolic androgenic steroids. So it, that's, you know, disturbing in a sense because, you know, uh, researchers sometimes afraid to even take a look at this very hot topic. But 2009, still needing more information on some of these cardiovascular and other effects. I think you mentioned earlier too. I mean, most of the research that's coming from and like in this in this particular area is going to be uh, foreign research. You're not going to see a whole lot of long-term research from the states, just because of 
you know, ethical reasons, you know, medical reasons, uh, especially from a, you know, a college or university setting and when you have to deal with, uh, you know, internal review boards, um, you're just not going to, you know, really see that. And if you do, it'll be, you know, something like maybe 10 weeks or 12 weeks, you know, at the most with, with, a, with a lower dose, that's probably not going to induce, uh, the effect um, that, you, that you're really looking for. So. Right. Talk about uncharted territory. These guys, a lot of people, strength athletes or people just going for the cosmetic effects like we touched on last time, they're stacking things that you're just not going to see in a, uh, an administration-type study where the researchers administer these meds. I mean, they're stacking all kinds of things that have very different effects, as we've talked about before, and you're probably not going to see a lot of documentation of that kind of stuff unless the studies are just trying to do observational work, you know, and and somehow they get approval to see what these guys are doing to themselves. In the second portion today of experiments versus experience, again, we're going to talk about a lot of experiments, but um, the experience factor is important as well. And I want to touch on a couple of side effects that don't get much attention in the media. One is depression. Uh, if you look at the literature, there's a number of studies now that are, you know, they're talking about things like physical dependence, uh, psychological dependence. Here's a 2009 paper from the journal Addiction. Um, it says anabolic androgenic steroid dependence and emerging disorder. It says about 30% of anabolic users appear to develop a de dependence syndrome. Now you might think, well, that's... That leaves 70%. That won't be me. Well, it may or may not be you. Um, and it says it does share some features of classic uh, drug dependence. Again, you could talk about psychological. You could probably also talk about physical uh, dependence. It says hamsters will self-administer anabolic steroids to the point of death. How about that? <laughs> Juiced to death hamsters. Um, but it says both humans and animals exhibit a well-documented withdrawal syndrome. And I think that's one of the things that doesn't get a lot of attention is the crushing, not just the physical effects, uh, but the emotional effect, the depression. Uh, a friend of mine down in Columbus, uh, Eric Serrano, he, he'll talk about um, trying to help former anabolic steroid users and the, just the brutal depression, you know, because these these medications, probably several of them, you know, they're sort of mood enhancing. And when you remove them, the depression can just be brutal. And I actually remember when I was an undergraduate, I knew a guy who had uh, said he was using a Dianabol and then stopped cold turkey. And for those of you who understand that particular med, you know, that's an oral medication. It's going to come and go out of your system pretty quickly. It's usually oral. Um, and he said he was working at night and just crying. Um, for no reason, and he was trying to sort of, you know, not let the other people see him. He said he was, and he he understood that it was sort of a, a brain chemistry thing, and yet there he was standing at work, you know, crying like a baby, um, just depressed and sad beyond belief. I mean, it's, anyway, this kind of thing is is a concern because if a if if you go to a physician, you say I'm really depressed. Well, then, you know, in that kind of situation, a physician might prescribe an antidepressant, but that's a kind of thing that could add to body fat gain or impotence. Right. Uh, and those are two things you're struggling with already. So, I mean, it, it's sort of a, a, a scary downward spiral as far as some of the, I think, the brain chemistry and the psychiatric. I, I think it's, a lot of it comes back, you know, to the person or the, the personality. I mean, yeah, it, it does happen, but we always hear sort of in the media about they, they sort of 
over-exaggerated to the point where it becomes like a horror story. And that's um, as opposed to, well, it just kind of happens, you know, to everybody. And you can expect it, you know, when you use and when you come off. And, and maybe they're not, maybe these people are not, you know, coming off gradually. They just, like you said, stop cold turkey like it's, you know, alcoholic drink or something like that. But, you know, maybe it has to do with, uh, you know, your dietary practice. Uh, are you you know, dissatisfied or you're preoccupied with your, you know, physique? Do you actually feel psychologically and physiologically, you know, addicted to it? Um, which I don't really, I've never seen in the literature that they're so totally addicting like other perhaps psychoactive drugs or, um, uh, or, or common drugs out there. So um, there's definitely uh, some discrepancy there. Yeah. Well, and, you know, of course, that, that paper I was just looking at said 30%. I think some people have more addictive type personalities perhaps. <laughs> You know, um, here's a 2008 paper, Drug and Alcohol Dependence, um, Long-Term Psychiatric and Medical Consequences of Anabolic Androgenic Steroid Use, a Looming Public Health Concern. And one of the things they, they're pointing out in this paper is um, we're looking at the first, what they say, large wave of former anabolic users that are now moving into middle age and how it's important to study them. Uh, because, you know, they're going to be the people who have been on long enough to have certain long-term psychiatric or, or you know, medical uh, consequences from this kind of stuff. So, and like you're saying, John, you know, from a practical point of view, the people that go on and stay on for long periods, of course, they're going to be at greater risk. I mean, researchers have been speculating for a long time that people who cycle, that's that may be one of the reasons that they you don't see some of the you know, really severe like organ or cardiovascular toxicity uh, and things like that because they're they're not on all the time. But then again, you know, there are people early in the career, they decide to go on and stay on, mm -hmm. and those would be at greater risk. Um, the other topic here is, aside from the, some of the psychiatric kinds of things, is the relative permanency of pituitary and gonadal shutdown that that can occur with different anabolic uh, steroids. I remember once reading that even though it seems benign in many other ways, nandrolone or uh, a drug called Deca, Decadrabalin, may actually be worse at pituitary shutdown. I don't have that reference in front of me, but here's a here's a, a quote that will um, be a little scary to some people. It says, "In fact, the suppression of testosterone production to near castrate levels." is very rapid and even occurs with therapeutic doses. It occurs within 15 minutes of an intramuscular injection of just 20 milligrams of testosterone. Oh, no. that, that, that's a, I'm actually pulling that out of a conference book, the uh, first international conference on weightlifting and strength training that was in Finland. Um, the paper it quotes is Fujioka et al. 1987. But very small amounts start this sort of you know suppression of endogenous or internal hormones. And uh, I think the concern is that there is a percentage of people that that does not bounce back in uh, as well. And, you know, now someone might say, John, you and I were talking about this earlier. Somebody might say, well, you just get on some gel, you get on some replacement shots. <laughs> what the heck? But, you know, that sounds pretty reckless uh, in a sense that, you know, you're going to be on a med the rest of your life. Um, because of that. Here's another paper. This is a 1985 journal of steroid biochemistry, and it actually says that some of the hormonal changes are still partly evident after 16 weeks of cessation. So the effects uh, are lingering and in some people even permanent. 
and it's the kind of stuff that you just you have to give that some serious thought. I think yeah, because uh, thought that goes into the stuff, and you know, as we as we talk about this, you know, a lot of the references are a lot of them are pre two thousand, which I mean are are rather old, but it does have it, it, you know, it still maintains a certain degree of validity. I just like to read something from this journal. Um, this is a references from the early nineties after discontinuation of administered androgens, the recovery of um, HPA axis or the hypothalamic pituitary axis you know, may take uh, weeks uh, to months, but again, it's going to depend on the dose, and like we talked about, the duration of, you know, your use. If someone's on for, and they just stay on, like you say, we, they run a greater risk of these things happening versus someone who's only on for maybe like three or four months at a time, you know, and cycles, you know, two, three times a year, so. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, well, so we've talked about cardiovascular changes, whether it's blood lipids or actually the heart muscle itself. We talked about psychological changes, uh, again, like we did last time. Not just the roid rage that you hear so much about, but some of the depression and psychiatric disturbances that are really just coming to light, I think, um, as we get you know, two decades hence after more the widespread you know, sort of use of, of anabolics and recreational uh, athletes and stuff like that. I did want to touch on just very quickly, and we, I think we've, we've talked about this a little, but the liver damage that you hear so much about, that's from 17 alkylated drugs, 17 alpha alkylation. It, it's made in, in a sense, so first pass metabolism of a pill by the liver, you know, the liver doesn't destroy it immediately, but that causes uh, problems. If you think, want to think about it in a lay way, it's sort of, you know, rams itself through the liver and into the bloodstream. And there are some anabolic steroids that are, or like, uh, you know, uh, anadrol, which are, are known even among athletes to be very toxic, um, things like that. There are others that, although they're 17 alkylated, may or may not have the same bad reputation, um, uh, like Dianabol or, or something like that, or Anavar, um, drugs like that. But in any case, it's important to understand that a lot of that liver damage stuff you hear about, that's from oral doses from pills. And even though a lot of people think injections seem more druggy and more scary than pills, that when it comes to anabolic steroids, I mean, obviously, aside from the risk of spreading disease, I mean, nobody in their right mind should ever share needles. The point is, is that the oral medications, although they may seem more benign, they're actually more dangerous, and that's where you hear about the liver damage and things like that. And most risk researchers, and I know Mike, you've seen the same, or John, you've seen the same thing, is that most researchers are going to agree that the liver damage thing gets overblown. Right, as absolutely, a, it's like most cases of the hepatic or the liver um, dysfunction. It may, it may not even be dysfunction per se, but um, actually occurs mostly with um, iliopleuritic syndrome people, which is used to be called preleukemia which is essentially just a collection of problems within blood cells and blood vessels, and uh, the risk of hepatic dysfunction during you know, antigen or steroid administration probably has been overstated, you know, being extremely uncommon in individuals receiving uh, you know, administration. So, Yeah. Now, that's not to say that there aren't cases in the literature, and you can sure find them. I remember in grad school, there was a guy on the track team, and we – People actually made fun of him. His name was Sean. They called him Shondis because he he was he looked jaundiced and he used to brag about. He's like you know the 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 uh, plan for champions is two anadrols, two large pizzas, and two pitchers of beer every night. And I thought, oh, that's great. Wow. 
well, you've got the secret, don't you, buddy? So anyway, you know, those kinds of things are worth pointing out that you do hear about the, the liver uh, damage and things like that. But it looks like some of the cardiovascular changes, I mean, permanent changes in blood pressure or heart morphology, heart function, uh, and some of the pituitary sort of gonadal changes, those are the things that are actually more prevalent, if you want to say it that way. Uh, and, you know, we're again, we're just trying to look at this in the most objective way possible. So uh, next time on Experiments versus Experience, and in a way this is sort of the, the bonus episode because we're putting this up uh, early because there were some technical glitches with the Iron Radio podcast this week. But next time on Experiments versus Experience, which you may not hear till February sometime, uh, we're going to talk about drug testing and how that's changed a little bit over time. We're going to talk about fakes. Um, one of the things we have not touched upon here as a risk is, of course, stumbling across dirty or fake anabolic steroids when you buy them illicitly. Uh, and that's a real concern, too. You can be, when you're injecting things into your body, you know, you're bypassing a lot of the body's protective mechanisms to keep out viruses and uh, antigens of different kinds. And so... You know that's a real concern too. So yeah, we'll just, touch on yeah, just a for, just a forecast for uh, the next you know segment. It's most people think you know that the testing parameters are uh, like a black and white issue, and you know believe me, it is not as simple uh, as it appears to be. There's so many techniques, um, and even even the most sophisticated techniques um, are you know uh, uh, flawed uh, you know, severely. So, um, but uh, like you said, we'll get into that next time for uh, the next segment next month. And that should be enough. That would be three episodes, I think, about anabolic steroids. So we don't want to obsess over that too much. But let's face it, they're a reality in strength sports. Um, and like we've been talking about, even just people who are interested in physique enhancement or in cosmetic effects. So it's, it's worth getting some information out and sharing. Of course, talk to your physician about these things. Uh, learn as much as you can uh, before you decide to self-administer anything like this. And so for Experiments versus Experience, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And this is Jonathan Mike. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.